vamos muchachada, no se dejen robar el futuro. Nosotros daremos el resto, todo lo que nos queda, pero la patria es de ustedes, el futuro es de ustedes, como dijo el Che Guevara. After teaching nearly 1.5 million people how to read and write, on October 28, 2005, Venezuela declared itself a territory free of illiteracy. This extraordinary achievement was done thanks to the work of Misión Robinson, one of the country's earliest social programs under Chávez, based on the Yo si Puedo model of illiteracy eradication from Cuba. The late Venezuelan president, Hugo Chávez, always placed a heavy emphasis on literacy and education, saying, quote, The only way of ending poverty is giving power to the poor. Knowledge and consciousness are the main power, end quote. Chávez sought to build a participatory democracy that would directly include the population in decision-making and knew that a robust education system, one that would seek to incorporate those historically excluded from the formal education system, was indispensable. From primary school all the way into higher education, Venezuela massively expanded educational opportunities for the population from the onset of the Bolivarian process. Unfortunately today, under brutal economic blockade, Many of those gains have been rolled back. Venezuela's public education system suffers from underfunding, with high rates of academic desertion and low wages for teachers. But better outcomes in education are still possible if there's the political will to fight for them. Welcome to the Venezuela Analysis Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Luis Granado Ceja. The Venezuela Analysis Podcast brings independent, on-the-ground, English-language coverage of Venezuela and the Bolivarian process. We'll hear news and in-depth analysis about the country, as well as coverage of leftist and grassroots forces. On today's episode, we're looking at the past, present, and future of education in Venezuela. To address this topic, we'll speak with Dr. Luis Bonilla Molina, former Vice Minister for Education in Venezuela, the co-director of the Latin American Council for Social Sciences International Research Center, Other Voices in Education, and currently a visiting professor at the Federal University of Sergipe in Brazil. Of course, when talking about education in a place like Venezuela, it cannot be limited to the halls of formal institutions. Venezuela is a place where education, especially political education, happens in the streets, in the barrios in the midst of grassroots organizations seeking to continue building socialism. When we talk about education in Venezuela, we must also talk about political formation and cadre building. To wit, in our first segment, we will speak with Venezuela analysis Sira Pascual Marquina, a distinguished educator in her own right. Sira talks to us about the role of movements and organizers to promote educational inclusion and participation, her own experience as an instructor at the Pluriversidad Patia Grande in Caracas, and her efforts at political education through the Escuela de Cuadros program. Hello, Sira. Looks like we're having you on the show back to back. And of course, that's no accident. I can't think of anybody else I'd like to talk to about this topic. For those of you who don't know, Sira wears many hats. In addition to her valuable contributions to the Venezuela Analysis website, she's also a political science professor at the Universidad Bolivariana de Venezuela and is a teacher and organizer at El Panal Commune's ed Educational Initiative. So who better to broach the topic of education in Venezuela? Sarah, one of the standout features of the education efforts in Venezuela, especially during the early years of the Chavez government, was the promotion of inclusion. 
The educational social missions eliminated illiteracy and facilitated access to education, including higher education, for the working class and the historically excluded. But that's only one half of the story. We also know that grassroots movements also responded, participating in government-led efforts, but also developing their own praxis. Tell us more about the role of grassroots movements and rank-and-file organizers to promote inclusion and participation in education in Venezuela. Well, it is wonderful to talk about uh, the Bolivarian Revolution and its educational project because it really is one of the cornerstones of this revolution. Uh, basically, already the constitution of the Bolivarian Revolution has very advanced elements, the 1999 uh, constitution. Basically, it promotes not only universal access to education, but also universal access to specifically uh, university education. And that in itself is, um, is a proposal that came from the grassroots. So already we can see with the constitution that there are elements that we know that come from the people who were organizing, who were participating in the constituent process and who had, of course, been organizing long before that process. So education became a centerpiece of the revolution. And I think that when we think about education, there's two moments that bring in together the, the grassroots and, um, and the government initiatives in a, in a wonderful way. The first moment would be Mission Robinson, which is the adult literacy project that began in 2003. This is shortly after uh, the coup, and basically Chavez was already beginning to work with the Cuban, with the Cuban government. Uh, the Bolivarian Revolution was beginning to work with the Cuban government and kind of like trying to figure out ways to promote uh, literacy programs. Of course, the Cuban Revolution is famous because uh, shortly after the taking of power, literally thousands and thousands of young people went to the countryside specifically to promote literacy programs. It was a very, very wonderful uh, chapter in the Cuban Revolution. So Chavez uh, and kind of like there was an awareness that there was a, a, a high number of illiterate of people, the illiteracy levels were rather high in Venezuela. So there's the promotion of this um, Mission Robinson, which is extraordinary because, and here's where the grassroots come in, comes in more directly. Of course, it was the people from the barrios, from the campo, who went to this project that was organized to a great degree um, following the Josip Puedo method, the Yes, I Can Cuban method. But the teachers were people from the communities. Oftentimes, the studying happened in people's living rooms or kitchens. So people opened up their living rooms and their kitchens uh, to, to welcome these study sessions, these collective study sessions. So that's a very, uh, actually, when I talk about it, it makes my, it gives me uh, goosebumps. So it really was a, an amazing moment in the in the Bolivarian Revolution. 1.3 million people actually learned to read and write through through Mission Province. And imagine that uh, Venezuela at that time was a country of approximately 25, 22 to 25 million people. So extraordinary. And actually, this all ties to the to the history and the and to the vision of the of the revolution because. Uh, the name of the project was Mission Robinson after 
Robinson, who, who, which is the name that Simon Rodriguez, Bolivar's teacher, took. In the late 18th century, a thinker, an educator of the late 19th century and through the mid of the 19th century, he not only was uh, Bolivar's uh, teacher, but he also wrote a fair amount uh, about education. And he had a very advanced conception of education. I'll give you kind of like two or three elements that are key to understanding uh, Rodriguez's conception of education because it was also key to the way that the Bolivarian Revolution and Chavez specifically thought about education. So basically, there's kind of like three main elements when we think about Robinson and his educational project, which is education for liberation. And he actually used uh, the term, which seems may seem to us like a contemporary concept, but it's actually already present in Robinson, in Simon Rodriguez, which means basically that education should be a means for uh, achieving social liberation. And that, it, that education should go beyond uh, memorization, critical thinking should be emphasized, so quite advanced. Then there's also uh, a practical education element to, the, to, to his thinking. Basically, uh, he said that students, young people, shouldn't just be studying theory, but also practice. So there's a practice element. And he thought of uh, education as, uh, as a space for building an equal and just society. So advocating for full inclusion of the whole population um, into the educational project. Why do I go into this? Because actually it's hard to understand uh, Venezuela's Bolivarian education project without having a, uh, some reference to, 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 to Simon Rodriguez and his thinking. And let's remember that uh, Chavez often talked in the early days of the revolution about the three roots of the the three roots for the Bolivarian tree revolution, we could say, and it was Simon Bolivar, uh, of course, and then Robinson, Simon Rodriguez, and Zamora, the great um, the great figure for the campesino revolutions in the nineteenth century. So. Rodriguez is very important to us who are committed to education. And then other moments, other important moments in kind of like the building of uh, a new educational model that brought in the people was uh, Mission Rivas, uh, which was a high school project, and Mission Sucre, which is one that is very dear to my heart because it's, well, in 2005, uh, Chavez uh, pro proposed to build the Bolivarian. Uh, university. It would have. It was the first university of the revolution, and it was uh, very advanced in the sense that the curricula was not the conventional curricula, but uh, where the students had to do their research in communities and apply other methods for investigation. So it was really, in that sense, it was very extraordinary. But uh, in another sense. The Bolivarian University was uh, conventionally the sense that it had one big campus, a building. Actually, it was, this is not the conventional part. It was in a space that had been in a building that had been part of the Creole uh, oil, petroleum company, the Creole Petroleum Company. 
that was taken for during the revolution. But it was this, you know, kind of like in terms of the space, it was a relatively conventional campus. Now, when the university opened, literally hundreds of thousands started to go there because they wanted to inscribe. It was Chavez's university. It was not going to be a conventional university. It was going to be a very inclusive university. But this campus was actually not so big. So Chavez decided, and the Bolivarian Revolution, I mean, actually, I would say the people demanded through it, their action of standing on lines uh, to inscribe themselves in the university, the people demanded that there had to be more than what there was. And that's when uh, university education began to be what we call municipalized. So in every municipality, uh, there would be school that at night would become a university. Of course, there the normal school system uh, that exists in Venezuela during the day, school, middle school, high school, whatever. And at night, uh, it, they became universities. So there were literally thousands of uh, seats of this, uni of this uh, grassroots university with hundreds of thousands and actually uh, at the point close to a million people studying in uh, Mission Sucre. So it was just great, really, really, really beautiful. How did the grassroots responded to this? Well, it was, uh, as I said, many, many people participated, but also many of the teachers were volunteer teachers, professors who were professors at the conventional universities during the day and who went to teach in Mission Sucre at night. I did that. Many other people did that. And, uh, well, it, what can I say? There's so much to learn from, the, from those early years of the Bolivarian Revolution in terms of the connection, really, between the institutional, the institutional the project promoted from the institution and the grassroots organization that, uh, that met in the middle to build uh, this wonderful, this wonderful really uh, this rupturist system that really broke with the norm, the conventional norms of education. So that's, I mean, that's kind of long, but uh, as you were saying in the beginning, all this is very dear to my heart. And I do hope that people will pick up again on this extraordinary moment of the Bolivarian Revolution as they think about their educational initiatives, because of course, everywhere, around the world, the grassroots promotes educational initiatives that are super important. You know, it's interesting also in Venezuela, it wasn't just about breaking paradigms about non-conventional methods, but also the emphasis on explicit political education. I mentioned at the beginning that you're a teacher and organizer at El Panal, uh, the, the educational community initiative there, which is known as the Pluriversidad Patria Grande. Can you tell us more about this project, the Pluriversidad? What's behind that name? And why is a space like this important in political education, in cadre building efforts, which are still very much alive and well and happening in Venezuela? Sure. So the Pluriversidad is actually just a two-year-old uh, initiative. As you said, it's promoted by El Panal Commune, uh, which is a commune in 23 de Nero Barrio neighborhood in, in Caracas, which is a working class neighborhood with a long history of struggles. And El Panel Commune is a very robust commune. So uh, of the, this commune actually began to form itself around 2006, and it's always had educational initiatives. So um, this, basically, this is the, 
we could say, the consolidation of a long history of educational processes. And yes, indeed, uh, political education is kind of like at the core of um, many of the grassroots initiatives in, in Venezuela. Uh, again, uh, Simon Rodriguez is kind of like one of the figures that um, shed light on, on the on on the pluriversidad and pluriversidad. We take the name pluriversidad because, well, basically we do believe that we have to study and that there has to be rigor and that there's a lot that we can learn from the conventional academy, but the conventional academy tends to be a one-track vision uh, university, you know, like it, it, con it conceives uh, the, the educational process uh, in a specific uh, con conventional track that is what we are accustomed to. So the, the idea of the pluriversidad comes from the idea of looking at different educational models, different experiences, as I was saying, Simon Rodriguez, but also Paulo Freire, the great uh, Brazilian educational thinker and educator, teacher. Um, and basically, uh, we put class struggle in the middle. I mean, when we, when we focus on political education, we put class struggle in the middle, as Paulo Freire would, because, well, um, if we are looking to transform our society, this this project is also uh, a Marxist project, the pluriversidad. Obviously, we believe that to we have to transform the world. The world that we live in is tremendously unjust. So we have to understand the world that we live in to transform it. That basically, um, Paulo Freire uh, is one of the reference for us as we as we think about building a new educational project the you, the pluriversidad is actually in a space that was a, it, it's still a school it's a school that was uh, that it was in the perimeter of the commune and the school was frankly in very, very poorly run and, and in very bad shape the infrastructure was in poor shape the teachers were not teaching. Well, there were a, a lot of problems. So around two and a half years ago, basically the community decided to do a takeover of this school and take control over the school. Uh, you know, like basically parents and, and the community in general wanted there to be uh, a, a school that was working well. So the commune basically took over the school and. Uh, Got rid of the of the direction and and cooperated with the Ministry of Education to put in a new direction in the school. This is the the school that is you know like maintains its course a, a traditional school let's say within the system, but it's but it's also overseen by the commune and the, by the pluriversidad. But it has its autonomy as a school as as a school should have. But then there, the pluriversidad itself has three legs, basically. There is a, a leg of, of political education, where we study um, Bolivarian thought, Marxism, feminism, uh, anti-imperialist thought, etc. And we do it in a relatively rigorous way, uh, but it's not academic. So basically, common arts and, and people from the organization come to study. They come to study there. And we have a track of studies that rather 
uh, you know, like meeting once, two, twice a week at night uh, to study everything from, for instance, right now we are studying Lenin, uh, we are studying uh, El Estado de la Revolución, State and Revolution by Lenin, we are studying it collectively. So that's one of the things that we, that we do there as an example, right? So that's one of the legs of the, of the pluridiversidad. And then there, there's another leg, which is Misión Rivas, which is this, as through an agreement with, uh, with the ministry, we have Misión Rivas in the pluridiversidad, but overseen by the pluridiversidad itself. Misión Rivas, remember, is the mission that allows people who didn't finish high school to go to finish high school. And the last one is Misión Sucre, again, uh, Misión Sucre, which is the university level um, mission. And we have three tracks of a study there, education, uh, IT, and agroecology. And we are working a lot in the agroecology area. We are working a lot with the MST, the Brazilian, uh, the wonderful Brazilian, enormous and very powerful Brazilian organization who are companies accompanying us in the agroecology track. So as you can see, it's a very diverse space. We call it un semillero comunal, which we could translate as a communal nursery. Nursery as in, but semillero is from the seed. So that kind of nursery or well, any kind of nursery really, but like a nursery for making the commune. And our objective is to help build the communal subject from, from the pluridiversidad. It's, uh, as I was saying before, it's an autonomous space, but that has links with the institution. It's fully self-funded by the commune and by the organization. And it has, uh, it's not, we are not talking about the size of, uh, of the projects of the initiatives of Chavez's time, but there's about 100 to 150 people involved in the different tracks of the study. And as I was saying, it's just two years old. So we are very happy with this because uh, it helps us. I mean, there, there has been for a long time, as I was saying before, an educational project in the, in the commune, but it has helped us a great deal to organize, to put a name to it, to develop uh, curricula, uh, to organize the study processes, the collective study processes, it has it has helped us a great deal uh, to advance in the in the commune in our communal construction at El Panel Commune. So yeah, yeah, it sounds like a perfect example of what you were talking about in the previous question, which is a space where social movements, grassroots movements, come together, cooperate with state-led initiatives, and actually deliver those educational results to people. I'm really glad you mentioned the MST as well. It's incredible. I've always said that if there's an example to follow when it comes to political education, I think the MST has a lot of lessons for, for social movements in the world. I've learned tremendously. I wouldn't be the organizer I am today if it wasn't for the MST. I want to start my last question for you with, a, with an anecdote. So a funny thing happened when we were in Caracas together to cover recent elections. We were sitting in the hotel lobby. I'm not sure if you remember this, but someone excitedly comes up to you asking for a picture. And I remember thinking, I was like, wow, Sierra's a celebrity. And it turns out that you very much are. And she knew you because of your work with Escuela de Cuadros or Cadre School. It's where you're a producer and a co-host. And indeed, you know, when I look into a topic, one of the first places I go to is the Escuela de Cuadros YouTube page. It's the best place to start. It's where I send all of my friends when they ask me, like, oh, what do you know about this topic? Or what can you tell me about Gramsci or Lenin's thoughts or all this? It's, it's incredible, the repository of information that you can find there. 
But I wanted to ask you, can you tell us more about the mission behind Escuela de Cuadros? What set this apart from something like the Pluridiversidad that we just talked about? And what role does this type of political education play in Venezuela and anti-capitalist education more generally? Well, Escuela de Cuadros is basically a Marxist education program uh, that uh, actually began a long time ago in 2007 to 2008. We are not sure. <laughs> But around there, that's when we began doing it. And it was in the heyday of the revolution. And it was clear that uh, we needed to study and we needed to study more because we were in the midst of a very complex, wonderful, but sometimes contradictory process. So um, Chris Gilbert and I were involved with Katia TV, which was a community television station. Uh, in the in the west of Caracas, a grassroots television station. There was a very uh, robust grassroots television stations uh, network at that time. Really, something that was also extraordinary. And um, so we were thinking, uh, well, and and we were we also felt like we ourselves needed more more educational formation. Chris and I, we felt like. Okay, we are in the midst of this, and and we call ourselves Marxists, but we really do need to study a lot more to 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 figure out things. And and we realized that um, with some prior organizational experience that we had had actually in contemporary art museums of all things, uh, and being in the context of uh, of a grassroots television station, we could use the platform to do uh, education on, on television, Marxist political education on television. So it was really a very simple idea. The only extraordinary thing, I mean, like everybody in, who's gone through a party thinks at some point that they have to study. The only thing is that we were in an extraordinary moment and that there were uh, community television stations. So one thing was able to meet with the other and we began to meet, make this television program, which is Escuela de Cuadros, Cate School. Uh, with Marx, Engels, and Lenin, we were very dogmatic in the beginning, by the way. <laughs> we are still Marxists and Leninists, but uh, we have kind of like a, a more uh, open reading. Um, and we began studying the, the Communist Manifesto. We would invite, and we still do the same thing, we invite somebody who knows the text well or theme well, and they are the presenters. So we first read a text, beginning with the Manifesto Communist, the Communist Manifesto. Each cadre reads it beforehand, and then the person presents it, and we ask questions. It's just uh, more or less a, a, a very conventional, traditional setting in an unconventional space, which would be television. So first we started in in Katia TV, then we went to BBTV, which is a national television channel. We transmit through YouTube, which is the main way that we transmit our content. And we keep at it. We've been at it for a long time, as, as I was mentioning. And also, uh, we've uh, produced something like four, close to 400 uh, programs, which are, I think, uh, if, if, you are, if you are into studying and if you are... If you're interested in Marxist theory, it's a good beginning. It's, of course, not, not enough. But one of the interesting things about the Escuela de Cuadros is that it also, uh, we don't just study the text. We try to 
map it onto our reality and also question it when it doesn't match our lived experience. Uh, so it's basically uh, as as all schools should do, no? as all uh, politicalist education schools should do. So I think that people who watch it, of course, do it because they want to learn about whatever uh, a certain section of uh, of Marxist capital, which is very hard to read, and they may turn to Escuela de Cuadros. But we don't just uh, read the section, but we also uh, well talk about how it might relate to our present and, and of course, to our future, which should be a collectively emancipated future. So that's what Escuela de Cuadros is. And... Um, it's been a, a, a school for us too. I mean, for Chris and I, who are kind of like the main organizers of it. Um, it's not a grassroots, you were asking about the differences with the pluriversidad, it's not a grassroots educational initiative. I mean, it's two people who are committed to the Bolivian revolution, um, but we don't participate, we don't promote the project as a, as a party, as a party, Cadre school. Uh, it's not connected to a particular organization. Um, it's rather plural in that sense because if, if it's connected to an organization, it will have to tell the line of that organization. So we have uh, guests who we may agree with or may not agree with uh, to go our experts on different themes. But it is not a grassroots space in the sense that we don't do it in a community. And it doesn't come out of uh, out of a collective process between the two of us, which um, has its riches, but certainly has its limitations. So that's what Escuela de Cuadros is, and of course, uh, everybody is uh, invited. It's in Spanish, uh, but everybody who's listening to us and watching us is welcome to turn to YouTube. If you go to Escuela de Cuadros, uh, you'll you'll find there quickly. Excellent. Yeah, I highly recommend. It's a great place to start. And if you don't speak Spanish, there's also the auto-translate feature. It's not the best, but it's something to work with. I really do recommend people go there. Uh, if they want to start learning about this, I think it plays a really important role as well. Not everybody has access to schools. Not everybody lives uh, you know, in a big city where there might be educational opportunities available to them where they live. And so it's good to have that as a resource. Thank you for your work, Sira. Thank you for everything you do and for your participation here today on the program on the Venezuela Analysis Podcast. Thank you, Jose Luis. Yo lo que digo hoy, el presente de lucha para todos nosotros. Jóvenes, el futuro es de ustedes. No permitiremos que se los roben como nos robaron a nosotros el futuro. Nuestro futuro. In our next segment, we will speak with Dr. Bonilla Molina former Vice Minister of Education, the founding president of the Miranda International Center, and founder of the International Research Center, Other Voices in Education. Dr. Bonilla Molina shares with us an in-depth and sincere evaluation of the achievements in education during the Chavez government, but also shares what he views as the mistakes made during this time. Most importantly, he gives us an eight-point roadmap to address the myriad of issues in Venezuelan education today. Hello, I'd like to welcome our guest who has come to speak with us about the topic of education in Venezuela. And I would actually like to start with a question about the early years of the Chavez government. Dr. Bonilla Molina, could you tell us about the measures taken during Chavez's early years, the efforts made to guarantee education as a human right? Specifically, how was it conceived from that perspective that education is not a commodity, but a right? 
How did it unfold within the broader struggle that the state had to fulfill its duties related to human rights to attend to the social debt? I'm very interested in particular how it dealt with economic, social, and cultural rights. Where does education fit in? You know, beyond figures and achievements, I'm interested in your perspective on the ideological vision, the pedagogical vision that motivated the social missions related to education. What is the legacy of that effort in the early years? Muchísimas gracias, querido José Luis. Fíjate, lo, lo primero es que Chávez es el resultado, es, Chávez es como un rompecabezas, es el resultado de múltiples aspiraciones ciudadanas. Thank you very much, José Luis. First of all, Chávez is the outcome. Chávez is like a puzzle. He is the result of many aspirations of citizens that become embodied in him. For me, the Venezuelan crisis in general began in February of 89 with the famous Black Friday, which breaks the illusion of a Saudi-like Venezuela, of a Venezuela where you could get commodities for cheap, and a very deep social crisis starts. And education has a special role in all this. In general, in Venezuela, access to higher education had been a serious problem. And from that moment on, we began to frequently see student strike committees demanding access to university. However, school dropout rates had also increased terribly as a result of the widespread economic crisis that began in February of 83. Chavez rose up in 92, and the student sector and the teaching sector emerge as an important base of support. While in the Yara prison, they presented him with the need to propose an alternative educational model based on inclusion. And that's what Chavez does when he arrives in power. It is expressed in the constitution of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela, the need to include the millions of Venezuelans who had not had access to education, from children to elderly people who wanted to study. So the first great achievement of the Bolivarian Revolution is to work on inclusion. The primary goal of the Bolivarian government in the early years was to break with exclusion, and at the beginning they come across an education ministry that at that time was a single ministry for all levels, was an excessively bloated education ministry that was unable to incorporate everything, so the large educational missions were created with the purpose of including all sectors. These missions represented a gigantic financial investment by the state to ensure that those who had been excluded from the educational system could access it. However, this is where the first major problem of the great educational transformation in Venezuela arises. We abandoned other areas of importance such as relevance, educational quality, and the proper structuring of curricula, which will be part of what we will discuss in the following questions. But for me, the Bolivarian Revolution is the revolution of educational inclusion, doing something that was only possible with a profound commitment to a social agenda. You touched a bit on the issue of things that were missing, the other issues that were left behind. But today we see a much more complicated situation. The education system in Venezuela has been one of the most affected as a consequence of the economic crisis which has been exacerbated by unilateral coercive measures. And it seems to me that both the government and the opposition understand the seriousness of the problem. We see a quite weakened system already. Teachers, like the rest of the public sector, have very low wages. Retiring people who cannot enjoy their retirement years. There's a dropout crisis that perhaps reaches the levels of those you mentioned from the 80s and 90s. What can you tell us about the quality of education offered in Venezuela today? And what does that tell us about the situation of the Bolivarian process in Venezuela? Bueno, las medidas coercitivas unilaterales de Estados Unidos y las naciones imperialistas son criminales 
The unilateral coercive measures by the United States and imperialist nations are criminal and threaten the country's stability. They violate national sovereignty and must be criticized and questioned firmly. I believe there is a growing national consensus in questioning them and saying they have only served to hurt the poorest, also impacting the education sector. However, the unilateral coercive measures came after some mistakes by the government. I don't quite agree that the central concern of the opposition and the government today is the quality of education and education in general. I believe that for them, the world of politics, the world of profit, the world of how much each sector gets is the priority. In view of an electoral process this year, they are currently using education and the social mobilization by teachers in recent years. They simply view it strategically, saying the words that can attract them as voters for one option or another. However, in practical terms, even with the current situation of unilateral coercive measures, greater benefits could be generated for the education sector. We conducted a comparative study in 2021 at Other Voices in Education, the organization to which I belong, on the salaries and working conditions of teachers in Latin America. We found, for example, that countries controlled by the right, like El Salvador, have a lower per capita income than Venezuela, which is subject to unilateral coercive measures, but guarantee much higher salaries for teachers and greater investment in education. Cuba, despite enduring 60 years of economic blockade at the time of our study, ensured salaries for teachers that were 10 times higher than those in Venezuela. Furthermore, we are all aware of the high quality of education in the Cuban system, as evidenced by standardized tests conducted by the Educational Quality Assessment Laboratory, including PISA tests and other assessments, which all indicate that academic performance in Cuba is the highest in Latin America. In fact, it is so high that it is often excluded from statistics because it distorts comparative studies with other countries. So the problem is not only the blockade. The problem is a conception of wealth distribution that, in my opinion, does not prioritize education and the most vulnerable sectors. Therefore, the first step is to criticize the unilateral coercive measures as they are criminal and affect all sectors, including education. The second point is that something more could still be done in education with respect to the precarious incomes in the Venezuelan economy if there were the political will for it, both from the government and the opposition. However, that is not happening. And the third element, which relates to what you mentioned about educational quality. This is a term that needs to be discussed extensively because the quality of education is a polysemic term that needs to be explored. It is a term that serves neoliberal organizations, economic bodies, development banks, and multilateralism to promote the neoliberal agenda. However, according to the Constitution of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela, we should work with a concept of quality much more linked to relevance and social impact. This concerns me because the recent measures taken by the Ministry of Education involve handing over control over the quality of education to UNESCO, the Regional Bureau for Education in Latin America and the Caribbean, and especially over to the Latin American Laboratory for the Assessment of Quality in Education, which has a concept of quality more closely linked to the neoliberal perspective than to ours. 
So this is a pending discussion. It could also be considered a pending debt of the Bolivarian process during the 1999 to 2013 period. It was taken up again by the Ministry of Education when Hector Rodriguez was minister, but unfortunately, it did not make much progress. There was a significant national debate on quality, a massive effort to see how inclusion was linked to quality. However, after Hector Rodriguez left office, all the work that had been done on quality was abandoned, and today the quality that is being sought to be imposed is the quality linked to multilateralism, UNESCO, and development banks. That last point you make is very interesting. We talk about quality, but to what end? Who does it serve? It's not about creating an education system that resembles something out of the Fourth Republic, but rather a pedagogy of liberation, something that can open new paths in terms of how are we going to approach education. And perhaps here I'm a little naive or optimistic, but it seems to me that with this crisis, as we know, a crisis can also be a moment of opportunity, the education system has to be rebuilt almost from scratch due to how much has been affected. So my question is, could this moment be considered an opportunity to create a truly new system, starting from scratch, rebuilding, taking up what worked, adopting new measures? What measures could be taken to improve not only the educational offering within this very complicated context that we've spoken about, but also an educational model that breaks with that capitalist vision of making education serve to create obedient workers who will act in the interests of capital? Sí, comparto contigo que es una oportunidad enorme y como tú lo dices, en esta coyuntura es necesario comenzar prácticamente de cero. Yes, I agree with you that it is a huge opportunity. And as you mentioned, in this current situation, it is necessary to practically start from scratch. Our education system in Latin America was created to respond to the needs of capital during the first two industrial revolutions, but was unable to adapt to the third industrial revolution. And now we are in the early stages of the fourth industrial revolution. Building an education system that can have a democratic, popular, and emancipatory perspective in the current situation almost demands this effort you speak of to start from scratch. However, Starting from scratch does not mean adopting the dichotomy that has been proposed in Venezuela over the last two decades. On one hand, from the Bolivarian government, and even I myself may have made this self-critical mistake at some point, there was a tendency to consider everything done during the Fourth Republic, before the election of Chavez, as bad, and everything done during the Fifth Republic as good. However, that's not the case. There were very important things done during the Fourth Republic, and we have made and continue to make many mistakes in the Fifth Republic. The opposition holds the same perception. Everything done during the Fourth Republic is perfect, and everything done during the Fifth Republic is bad. This dichotomous view does not help to revitalize an education system. We need a critical thinking that is as objective as possible in order to rescue the best, the good that was done during the Fourth Republic, leave behind all the negative and exclusionary aspects that also occurred during that period, and also properly value the achievements and conquests in education during the Bolivarian Revolution. We must also be capable of self-criticism regarding the mistakes we made and gaps we have. In this regard, from my point of view, there are eight major problems that need to be addressed urgently for that complete restructuring you speak of. 
The first issue is to resume the debate on educational quality. This means that in order for quality not to be simply an empty signifier, we need to work on updating the educational system. Much of the content currently in use is outdated, and we need to, while respecting tradition and not breaking away from general knowledge, incorporate new elements. We need to regain the system's ability to circulate updated literature. Both teachers and students need access to deeply updated books, and we also need to keep up with the accelerating pace of scientific and technological innovation in real time. In this sense, I want to highlight, as I mentioned earlier, the Ministry of Education's uncritical approach to the efforts of the Educational Quality Assessment Laboratory, which was established in Monterey, Nuevo León in 1994, and was sponsored by the neoliberal government of Salinas de Gortari to promote an evaluative culture that aligned school systems with neoliberal policies. Therefore, this UNESCO body is not neutral. We need to approach it with critical thinking. The second element is that we need to work on the curriculum development model and de-pedagogization. The closed prescribed curriculum system that has been imposed in recent decades, not only in Venezuela, but also in Latin America, no longer makes sense because it does not allow us to keep up with the pace of innovation. We all know that curriculum reforms can easily take five or six years or even 10 years in the best cases at universities. This was feasible in cycles of innovation lasting 30 to 34 years, as was the case until the 1960s. However, today, innovation cycles last only three or four years. By the time we finish implementing a curriculum reform to update it, what is being proposed as new is already obsolete. We need a new curriculum development model that is open, flexible, based on pedagogy, and breaks away from the curriculum-based approach to education. The third element is the technological aspect. First, we need universal internet coverage. We have been saying this since 2015, when we warned of the risk of a global pedagogical blackout, an abrupt transition to virtual learning, as happened during the pandemic. However, between 2015 and 2020, we did not do what was necessary to guarantee universal access to the internet, and we saw the precarious situation of connectivity during that period. We need to advance in algorithm literacy. The major tech corporations have created the paradigm that technology belongs to computer scientists and technicians. However, today, we need mass algorithmic literacy so that the content and platforms produced are deeply appropriated by the people. We need to build educational platforms. Those used during the pandemic were primarily communication platforms and led to the re-establishment of the banking model of teaching, with the teacher on one side and the students on the other, when some places had already made significant progress based on Paulo Freire's criticisms of the banking education system. What was implemented was a digital version of the banking model of education, and the new generation of platforms emerging from the major tech corporations are designed for the reproduction of knowledge rather than generating critical and creative thinking. We need to work on the issue of digital platforms in an autonomous manner here in Venezuela, but also the technological issue as a whole. We need a new social plan, which is the fourth element. Our young people are experiencing severe hunger and malnutrition in the country, and learning properly is not possible when students are hungry. 
We need to enhance school meals, even providing all three meals at school to ensure that our youth can eat properly. Other programs to provide nutritional components, such as vitamins, should be implemented so that they can learn with adequate nutrition. Additionally, we need to launch a strong national scholarship program for the popular sectors to supplement the economic demands students have so they can attend school. The fifth element is that we need to further develop the humanistic aspect with a universal vision. We have made mistakes by limiting humanism to the single perspective of human knowledge, and humanism is much broader. Sometimes in certain cases, humanistic education is compromised for the benefit of a single political factor, and that is dangerous. We need education to regain its universal sense with critical thinking and a commitment to the social agenda while acknowledging the universality of thought. The sixth element is that we need to address the issue of teachers' salaries. With current teacher salaries ranging from $3 to $20 per month, it is impossible to sustain an inclusive quality education system that fosters critical thinking. This needs to be urgently addressed. I say, let's at least emulate the right-wing countries like El Salvador or the standards set by Cuba, which has faced a 60-year blockade and does not have oil or any mineral wealth like Venezuela. We need to quickly restore salaries to a range of $200 to $800 per month, and this can only be achieved with a genuine national agreement that truly prioritizes the needs of the popular sectors, rather than a national agreement that talks about education, but only considers forms of accumulation for the bourgeois sectors of both the old and new bourgeoisie. Without a salary increase for teachers, any other strategy we implement in education is likely to fail, because today, a teacher cannot afford to go to the classrooms for five days or to teach for 22 days a month, as they cannot sustain their family on that low wage. This is the dilemma we are facing today, and it needs to be addressed quickly. The seventh element is teacher training. We need to develop teacher training that is in line with the third decade of the 21st century and the transition from the third to the fourth industrial revolution. The teacher training models in universities controlled by the right wing, as well as those universities aligned with the government, are often focused on looking backward to the past rather than addressing the present, let alone preparing for the future. The eighth element is that we need to restructure the education financing model, placing greater emphasis on public funding. Even in the current conditions of economic imperialism and blockade, we need to think creatively about how to secure higher levels of financing. There have been discussions about raising the price of gasoline to 50 cents and allocating 10 of those cents to education, but this has not been implemented. There's talk of a new adjustment. The Venezuelan population would understand a new adjustment in gasoline prices from 50 cents to 60 cents per liter if it guarantees a public fund for teacher salaries and improves the quality of education. We need to address the gross inequality represented by the new wave of concerts in Venezuela, where tickets range from $60 to $1,500, catering only to an elite few. Taxes should be imposed on the large profits made from these concerts, on the artists themselves, on the companies bringing the artists. Those who can afford a $1,500 ticket should contribute more through taxes when teachers are earning just $20 a month. 
We need a comprehensive government campaign to tax large profits and redistribute them toward education to ensure quality, relevant, inclusive, updated, humanistic, and deeply transformative education for the country. Para garantizar una educación de calidad, pertinente, inclusiva, actualizada, humanista y profundamente comprometida con la transformación del país. Thank you very much for the interview. I really learned a lot from you. Would you like to add anything else here at the end for those listening to us? Sí, bueno, agradecer y ojalá que en el resto del mundo les escuche este podcast. Yes, I want to thank you. Hopefully, those who listen to this podcast will know that there are heroes in Venezuelan education today. They are the teachers, the professors who, even in the economic situation that I have expressed here, make superhuman efforts to guarantee public education. Today, they are the great giants, the great heroes of Venezuelan education, the teachers who, even beyond political and ideological differences, have taken on their shoulders the gigantic task of ensuring the continuity of the school system. They truly deserve to see the government and the opposition reach a national agreement that provides fair wages, justice in working conditions to ensure that the future of Venezuelan education and Venezuelan society is not based solely on oil revenue but on the generation of knowledge. In this task, the teachers of Venezuela are the great heroes. That's our program for today. For more on the issues explored, check out episode 17, Life is Better in the Commune, and episode 2, Popular Power Under Duress. One final note. Education and political formation has always been incredibly important to me. I would not be the person I am today were it not for the political education I received on the streets of Caracas when I first visited Venezuela in 2005. It was extraordinary to me to see how, no matter where you turned, there were people having rich debates about the efforts to transform the country and build socialism. I had never seen anything like it. I could see the fruits of the state's efforts to tackle exclusion and promote political literacy amongst the working class so that they could become the protagonists of Venezuela's participatory democracy. I remember my reaction when I was told that the Caracas campus of the Bolivarian University of Venezuela was previously a building belonging to the state-owned oil company. I was a student activist back then, and I said to myself, now this is how you build an inclusive education system. Later on in life, I would have the privilege of attending the Escola Nacional Flores San Fernandes, the MST's cadre school in Sao Paulo, Brazil, a political formation school quite literally built by the hands of the landless peasant movement supporters, who were simultaneously taught how to read and write while erecting the buildings that would comprise the school. At the Escola Nacional Flores San Fernandes, together with dozens of other organizers and activists from throughout Latin America, I learned the intricacies of the systems of oppression that enforced the capitalist mode of production, an invaluable experience that I carry with me in my work today as a journalist. The MST has always played great emphasis on political education and cadre building. The Escola Nacional Florestan Fernandez showed me how far this work can really go, and I similarly try to place the same emphasis in my political work now. All that to say education and political formation are indispensable for those of us who believe in building a better world, for those of us who want to transcend capitalism and march towards socialism. Despite the most adverse circumstances, in Venezuela we can still find examples of people working to teach the next generation of organizers, examples of teachers fighting to guarantee quality education for their students, and of grassroots movements building the infrastructure necessary to create new cadres. If it can be done in Venezuela, then it can be done everywhere.
Be sure to visit us at venezuelanalysis.com for regular news and analysis on all things Venezuela. We're also everywhere on social media. If you enjoyed this program, please share it with your friends. We'll end today's episode with the song Que Vivan Los Estudiantes by Los Guarawau. Astronomía, caramba y samba la cosa, que viva la astronomía.